0: They were coming to me and saying, hey, you know, my motivation really sucks. My concentration's terrible. I sit in meetings. I can't focus for a second. My mood's all over the place. I'm short with my kids, grumpy at work, hard to get along with, get super emotional for no reason. Sex drive sucks. My body composition's shifting, like losing muscle. I'm gaining fat, but I'm working with the nutrition. I'm working with a strength and conditioning coach. At that point in my career, I didn't know anything about sleep. I didn't have a single class on, on sleep in medical school, nor did any other doctor that I know of. Maybe now, but not by the time I went through training. I think I probably found out how they slept by asking about the meds they were on. You know, it it took me kind of a while to catch on to it. This little trend that seemed like everybody who came in my office complaining about all these symptoms, which I was calling the SEAL syndrome, since been studied in more detailed by, you know, PhDs and now it's called the operator syndrome.
1: All right. Well, thank you for joining me again today. We have a very special guest and I'll introduce him in just a moment, but we have, I want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We have Shell Pace at the $50 level, Sam and Angela Shelkey at the $20 and 20 cents. We have the Plandemic Reprimando, which is $17 and 76 cents a month with Ty, Charles, Tinfoil, Stanley, Dr. Anna, Frank, the the $10 level of with Kevin Alanos. We have the refined, not burned $5 giving level with Linda, Emmy, Joe, Pat and Bev, PJ, Rebecca, Marcus, Elizabeth, Dawn, Jennifer. And then the the lowest level where the courage is contagious, we have Amanda, Jay, Spetsnasty, Darrell, and Susan. I want to thank everyone so much for contributing. It does mean the world to me. Now, this next guest I have, he is a doctor who's gone through his own difficulty while being active duty. He first started off as a Navy SEAL, and he completed SEAL training at 19 years of age. And then he went into the Gulf War as a Navy SEAL. And then in 1994, he left the military to go get a college education. He re-entered the military, the Navy in particular, to attend medical school at Bethesda, where he became, he was commissioned as an officer in the Navy in 2000. He began to practice medicine for the Navy SEALs. And this is where he learned there's a difference between healthcare and health. And this is kind of the the difference between an MD and a DO, I would suppose, is, is that our goal as physicians is to look for health, not just provide healthcare. He had his difficulties treating the special operators with the medicine they needed to get them at peak performance. Dr. Parsley has worked with thousands of elite performers and has had tremendous success optimizing physical, cognitive, and emotional performance. And he builds this on what we've talked about before at this podcast, sleep, nutrition, exercise, stress mitigation, and with a strong emphasis on sleep. Well, Dr. Parsley, thank you so much for for joining me today. As I understand, you were having some difficulty when you were in when you were active duty because you were doing things that were more do centric, and I think we had some some glitches here and there. And I don't know if we recorded it yet, but I kind of found out that you trained under a dio before you even started med school, and that kind of helped shape your philosophy. It seems.
0: Yeah, for sure, and and also, you know, I I mean, I guess I was about 25 when I started college and started working with all those guys, and so. You know, my only exposure to doctors had been in the military, like, you know, for Navy physicals, whatever, or for orthopedic injuries. So I really thought of medicine was as as like a way to help people perform better. And that that's kind of the the way that I always thought about it. I, I didn't really I didn't really realize that it was so heavily focused on. Disease care and not even disease care that's a stretch you know but yeah i i I don't know what else to call it but you know identifying disease and following protocols you know something like that which n- never never really entered my mind as the way things would be but yeah you know when i got to the seal teams you know these are you know by by and large you know by by society terms young young people you know whether they consider themselves young or not like you know a 32 34 year old seal considers himself old you know not unlike a fighter or a bull rider or something like that you know it's just it's just a rough hard job that's better suited for young rubber people but you know when i got there the guys you know well you know the first thing you know to note is that they're a lot like professional athletes and that they don't the worst thing that you can do for them is take them out of their job so putting them on the bench even for six weeks or in eight weeks is about the worst fate they can imagine. So they usually don't tell their doctors anything. And, you know, the advantage I had, of course, is that I'd been a SEAL. And not only was I a SEAL, but I I had, you know, gone through training and done deployments with SEALs that were, you know, still at the command. So people knew me, you know, I obviously had a, at least a decent reputation and people trusted me enough to come and talk to me. You never really know what your reputation is, you know. <laughs> but I, I feel like I, I had a pretty good reputation, so people came and talked to me, and they were telling me, you know, things that weren't diseases, right? They were coming to me and saying, "Hey, you know, my motivation really sucks. My, you know, my concentration's terrible. I sit in meetings. I can't focus for a second. You know, my mood's all over the place. I'm short with my kids. I'm." I'm grumpy at work. I'm hard to get along with. I get super emotional for no reason. My sex drive sucks. My body composition's shifting. Like, yeah, I'm losing muscle. I'm gaining fat, but I'm working with a nutritionist. I'm working with a strength and conditioning coach, and you know, at that at that point in my career, I didn't know anything about sleep. I didn't I didn't have a single class on on sleep in medical school, nor did any other doctor that I know of. Maybe now, but not by the time I went through training. And I don't even remember. I don't even really remember if if I asked them about sleep. I think I probably found out how they slept by asking about the meds they were on. And uh, you know, it, it took me kind of a while to catch on to it, but I caught on to this little trend that seemed like everybody who came in my office complaining about all these symptoms, which I was calling the seal syndrome. It's since been studied in more detailed by. You know, PhDs and written up into peer-reviewed journals, and now it's called the operator syndrome. But it was—it's all the same findings. And so, you know, of course, I didn't have any idea. I—I I, when they when they first started talking to me, I was thinking, well, you know, in previous war we had these things called shell shock and we had combat fatigue, and although these weren't really well described things, this was 2009, so we'd been, you know, we'd been at war for eight years. And I thought, well, maybe this is that. And so I kind of started trying to look back towards that, but nothing reached the level of disease, right? So it wasn't like I could just say, oh, well, that's this. And so here's the protocol I follow. And because I didn't know, and and you know, I, I was completely honest with them and saying, I don't know, like, I have no idea what's causing this, but you're not the first guy to tell me this. And in fact, their stories were so similar you know, after the first 10 guys came in my office, you know, the next 300 guys who came in, I could have told them their stories and saved time. But, I, you know, I always, I, of course, I didn't. I always went through and looked for unique things. And so originally I started thinking, well, maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe it's this thing, you know, this combat fatigue or shell shock or something and look back and see what were the, the treatments. Well, nobody really knew then either. Nobody knew how to treat it then. But I started looking sort of towards non-traditional alternative methods and thinking, well, you know, maybe there's, you know, some, maybe there's some sort of toxicity involved. I, like, I don't know what, like what's, you know, what, what, what could I possibly look at? So I really just kind of came up with a lab panel that was anything I could possibly imagine might be affecting their performance. And I had them run to the hospital and it was, you know, 98 different serum markers, you know, 17 vials of blood. I wasn't a big fan of that apparently that was costing about two thousand dollars per person so i got you know i got in a little trouble for that you know but what what came back was by and large it was you know it wouldn't have had i sent it to an endocrinologist or pain specialist by and large it wouldn't have it wouldn't have reached their threshold for disease right but you know they're say they're like their testosterone, their bioavailable free testosterone, any kind of any marker you want to look at there, that was all probably in the lowest ten percent of the normal range, right? And the normal range, of course, is a enormous from two hundred fifty to eleven hundred, and we can go through the data, you know, like the normal range and the BS there, how how they came up with that, but you know, basically all of everything anabolic, every kind of animal anabolic marker you can think of, those were all really low. And sometimes they were clinically low, but most of the times I'd say they're in the lowest 10 to 20% of the range. Everything catabolic or inflammatory looked really high. Their insulin sensitivity is what really threw me off because a lot of these guys I knew really well. And I knew that they were, I I knew how they ate and I knew how they worked out. I knew how they lived their lives and and they were doing everything right. And again, they weren't diabetic, they weren't pre-diabetic, but it, you know, it was much higher than you, you know, their HbA1c, their fasting insulin, their fasting blood glucose, a lot higher than you would expect for someone as fit as them, as they were. So like I said, somewhere in the third, you know, first 30, 40 guys, I don't know, it, it kind of a bell went off on my brain. I remember really clearly where I was when I was. I was sitting there taking down his history. And he, and I was asking about his meds and he said, one of the things he was taking was Ambien. And I thought, well, wow, it seems like a lot of guys say that. And so I, I made a note in the margin. And then I came back later and looked at it, looked through all of my patient files, because, you know, another thing that, they trusted me to do was not put any of this in their medical record if it was damaging, could be damaging to their career. So I kept shadow files. And when I left, I just gave them all their shadow files and said, this is supposed to go in your medical record, do with it you know, as you please. You know, like I'm, I'm not the moral arbiter here. And so you know, I went back through all their shadow files and found out pretty much every single guy who had been in my office. Well, it was 100% of the people who had come in my office to tell me the story were taking Ambien. So I thought, wow, maybe there's something there. Like I don't, and and I don't know. Like it, it wasn't obvious to me that there was something there, but it just seemed like a hell of a coincidence. And you know the the pharmaceutical game. You know the FDA owns the research, or I'm sorry, the pharmaceutical industry owns the research that they give the FDA. They cherry pick. They give the FDA what they want. They don't have to give the FDA everything. They just give them the most salient data. And, but then if they ever get sued, then they have to cop up all the research, right? And so they had been sued. Actually, that year is either 2000, late 2008 or early 2009. They had gotten sued for this dissociative properties of Ambien, which was basically, you know, people were taking Ambien. You know, their neocortex was completely dissociating from their midbrain and brain stem. And they were just going out and doing animalistic behaviors, picking up prostitutes, gambling over, you know, gorging themselves on food, you know, and they were so dissociated, they would go out for four hours, six hours, come home, get back in bed, wake up a couple hours later and not remember anything. But maybe, you know, if they lived in Vegas, they might've gone down, you know, to the casino and gambled away their life savings or, you know, picked up a prostitute, got arrested for it. No recollection of it. So anyways, they were sued. When they when they were sued, they had to cough up all the data. Again, I didn't know enough about sleep to understand the data, but I started educating myself on, well, what happens when you sleep? You know, like maybe maybe this could be affecting some of their performance. And so, you know, no big surprise. You know, I would say the average, the average citizen now who engages in social media whatsoever knows a hundred times more about sleep than I knew at that time nobody was talking about sleep that wasn't that just wasn't a topic that the that the culture was talking about and so you know once i learned about sleep and started learning about what happens during the sleep stages i realized well you know every single symptom these guys are complaining about could be caused by lack of sleep i didn't i I didn't honestly think it would explain everything but i thought you know this is probably a big mover you know in some like a simple example uh, you know 95 98% of all the testosterone you make in a 24 hour period you make during the first four hour, four hours of sleep right because you're making it during your you know deep sleep like what we call slow wave sleep cycles or deep sleep or stages 3 and 4 delta and theta like what whatever you know whatever you want to call that the, the non-rem sleep that's when you, that's when all your hormones are being made and rebalanced and you know measured and and rebalanced and so I was like, well, maybe I can get their hormones up with that. Maybe if their hormones feel better, you know, if maybe if their anabolic hormones go up, they'll feel better and they'll perform better and blah, blah, blah. And so I started heading down that way. But before, like, I think to your to the question we started with, you know, I, I started, I started thinking initially, I was thinking, well, maybe this is adrenal fatigue or something. So I was giving, you know, it's giving them supplements. I was giving them Myers cocktails. I got in trouble for that because apparently giving vitamin IVs is beyond the scope of an MD, so I wasn't allowed to do that. You know, I I wasn't allowed to I wasn't allowed to prescribe supplements, and I was, I was like, well, I'm not prescribing them. I'm just telling them to go buy them, so it's recommendation, but whatever. Got you know got in trouble for that, and yeah, you know, I was trying to use like adaptogens, and so anyway, I I finally you know hit upon this sleep thing, and then when I read when I knew enough about sleep, and then I read the research about what Ambien does to sleep and what alcohol does to sleep. And most of these guys were, you know, having a few drinks every night and taking, you know, usually overdosing on Ambien. Just the mentality of a seal, you know, one's good, two's better, three's probably great. So, you know, they're taking way more than they should. They're usually having a few cocktails with this. And, you know, it turns out that, you know, Ambien and, you know, any of the Z drugs, they... They destroy about 80% of REM sleep and about 20% of deep sleep. Alcohol destroys about 80% of deep sleep and 20% of REM sleep. So when I sent these guys to get their sleep studies, they, every single one of them came back 99% stage two sleep. So you know, according to a sleep study, they weren't getting any deep sleep or any REM sleep. So how they were surviving, I don't even know. But then I said, well, hey, you know, let's get them off of ambient and see what happens (laughs) you know and so i that's what i did and i gave them a little bit of daytime support stuff but all you know all over all over the counter supplement things that they could do to kind of you know inhibit aromatization of testosterone and you know so i had them like on dhea supplements and then zinc to prevent or you know aromatization pregnenolone to kind of give a cortisol pathway you know and just you know, basic, very basic stuff. And uh, once they all got off of sleep drugs, which 100% of them did, you know, I, and, and of course, when they, when I had to get them off of sleep, I had to come up with a supplement stack to get them off of s- the sleep drugs. Cause I couldn't just say, you know, can't just like, they're taking Ambien because they can't sleep. So I can't just say quit taking Ambien. So I, I came up with the stack and, you know, they helped me. They're very helpful because they're great. They're great uh, patients. And they would come in and, report to me every day and we kind of figured out the right dosage of the right supplements and you know we got we got all of them you know all of them got off of you know the sleep drugs and and you know that in the combination with the daytime support stuff they were you know they were going from the lowest ten percentile of the normal testosterone range to the top 10 percent you know i I had a few guys go super physiologic for reasons i don't understand i guess they were just outliers not hugely super physiologic but you know maybe 100 points out and uh, you know that that led to me you know beating the sleep drum and trying to convince the leadership that sleep was a problem and that it was affecting their performance and then of course you know i i learned more and more over the years and realize, well, yeah, that that can be affecting their mood and their emotionality and their cognition and their memory and their problem-solving skills and short-term memory, working memory, you know, all of that stuff. And uh, yeah, like, like yourself, you know, I got my privileges suspended and investigated many times. You know, I, I was told point blank to quit doing it, to quit practicing outside of my scope and to just do sick call medicine. And I just, nodded politely and said yes sir and went and did what i was going to do so you know it, it it's the only thing that made sense to me i mean if if you give them the option of satisfying the leadership or taking care of the guys that i'm in charge of taking care of you know my brothers, the community that saved my life you know that's a no-brainer for me so i just said well i'm gonna keep doing it and if they I didn't think they'd throw me in jail but you know i thought they might figure out a way to throw me out of the military but they they didn't other than you know just sort of making to where i wasn't going to advance anymore you know but I, I i wouldn't have needed to to stay in but i, I and then i just figured after all that hoorah it would have you know i could do a lot more for the guys outside than i could inside and so i you know i got out at the end of that term or you know, at the end of that payback period from. From going to the you know, military's medical school. And I just got out and started my own practice and you know started seeing these guys on the side. And, you know, ironically, a few years later, SOCOM hires me to come in and lecture all of their healthcare providers about all the stuff that I was doing. You know? Wow. And so Yeah, that that that's the
1: reader's digest version of, of that five years of my life. So, what are the, some of the lab improvements that you you saw with your patients back then, just by getting them off the ambient, changing their sleep, and giving some, you know, nutraceuticals and supplements? Yeah, I
0: well, I tell you, every everything normalized. Like I I can't think of anything. Now, I wouldn't say that everything optimized, but everything normalized. You know, because the the piece of the puzzle that I didn't figure out until. Two years before I got out was was the traumatic brain injury, right? They're they're so you know they they they've all and I, I can put myself in this category. Like we've all received you know thousands thousands of blast concussions, right? So it's different. It's it's a, it's a different type of concussion. It causes a shear force. So you know basically you can just picture a blast wave going through going through the brain or going through the skull and through the brain. Like any blast, like I mean, it's air compression, right? So everything that's a different density moves at a different rate, and so when that happens, everything shears. So the dura shears off the vessels, which shears off the white matter, which shears from the gray matter, which shears from the you know vascular linings, and you know, and so at, at every interface, you know, you can see beta amyloid plaques now. We like we've seen all this in autopsies and all this now. So the TBI was a component because. You know traumatic brain injury not only causes inflammation to the brain and dysfunction of you know what we think of as cognitive issues but you know your your brain is the regulator of all your hormones right it is it's really i mean it's it's the conductor of the whole show right so it's affecting everything and so you know i saw i but you know i saw drastic improvements in everybody i just didn't probably get to optimal with everyone but you know i You know, higher, higher, you know, higher, higher total testosterone, higher free testosterone. You know, I was, you know, I, at that point in my career, I think I had, I think I was having a really hard time figuring out how to lower sex hormone binding globulin. That, that doesn't correct automatically. You know, that's something that takes, that takes time. But, you know, lowering their estradiol and they, they had the estradiol levels of 30 year old women almost. I mean, you know, they had, which raises sex hormone binding globulin, which, you know, reduces the free percentage of testosterone. Their IGF-1s would be, you know, 100, 110, and they're, you know, 32 years old. They, you know, should be closer to 300. Their inflammation, you know, so inflammatory markers, oxidative markers, those, you know, those came crashing down. Those would reduce 80, 90%. The, you know, insulin sensitivity, like their fasting insulin would drop by, you know, probably threefold you know so they they like I said they weren't diabetic but they're you know they were kind of they're kind of heading up towards that number you know like where where you're starting to get concerned about insulin sensitivity and i was, you know bringing them all you know bringing them all back down to what you would expect from a young athletic person you know something in the two to five range two to four range yeah, you know, their HbA1Cs HB A1, HB were coming down from 5.8 to 4.8, you know, which fit for them, you know, for the diets they're eating and the type of performance they're doing. So, you know, everything really aligned. They're all magnesium deficient. They're all vitamin D3 deficient. So, you know, we did that. And, you know, I think that's, you know, some separate supplementation, but we did that as well. You know, and I had, you know, I had some, you know, like, the CEO of one of the SEAL teams was my patient. Yeah. I had a lot of the leadership good because they were, they were the older guys. They'd been struggling with it longer. And by older, I mean, they were 40 or or older. Right. And, but I, you know, I had 42, 43 year old, you know, commanders and captains that were not only, you know, they weren't just PRing for their, for their recent elder years. They're PR, PRing for their life, you know, like they were the fastest, you know, the fastest three mile run they've ever done in their lives. The fastest, you know, the this, whatever the the highest squat, the power cleans, what, what CrossFit times, whatever it was they were into, you know, they were getting, you know, they were you know after a year of treatment or so, they were getting the, the the best performance they'd ever had in their lives. And then of course one of the one of the fastest markers you see, or one of the things that comes out so obvious which we validated on the rehab side is that we, you know, we cut rehab time down by, you know, you know, cut it in half roughly, you know, at, at wow. least, yeah, at, at least 30 or 40% faster, but a, the vast majority of re- rehab time
1: was cut in half. Well, that's amazing. I mean, it seems like you were making amazing leaps forward and you know, this is how medicine seems to be This is what I've noticed is they don't, well, science in general is they don't like the new thing until. Until it's been around long enough, then you don't want to be the last one on. And that's why they probably hired you to come back and teach what you had already been doing.
0: Right, right. Well, and now it's now I think it's, you know, a lot of it's caught on. In fact, I remember I I just so happened on a on a flight to be sitting next to a an, an MD, PhD professor who I mean she was at a big school. One of the ivy League institutions or at least one of the the elite upper you know blue chip ones and uh, and she taught medical ethics and and I told her kind of about some of the trouble that I'd been in, and the one thing that she harped on was you know one thing that she really focused on I, after uh, after all I told her the the thing that stood out to her was that I was giving guys a Remedex to know to lower their estradiol levels lower their sex hormone binding globulin to increase their free percentage of testosterone right and she said you know you really don't want to be the first doctor giving any medication for the for any you know any cause you know for a novel cause or a novel you know using a medication in a novel fashion and i was like well somebody has to be the first one or it never happens right you know and she's like well i'm just telling you from like a medical legal standpoint you're really putting yourself at risk with that one and i was like all right and now yeah now that's common knowledge like you know everybody like strip mall doctors who do you know weekend hormone cor- courses and you know whatever open up little low t clinics or whatever they call them you know like you know those guys are doing it like everybody knows it now same thing with sleep it's like when i i and i'm not exaggerating and this it literally happened to me where i got laughed out of the office of the leadership when i was telling them that lack of sleep was lowering our guys testosterone and growth hormone levels and they just thought that was the most ridiculous thing they'd ever heard of in their life and that i needed to go back to medical school and I was like okay, all right well and then of course you know it it caught on and now you know now now the average the average person who listens to a few health health and wellness podcasts knows all that stuff that and, and you know in the benefit that I did have you know there there were there were doctors out there in the world who knew this stuff and because I you know because I was a doctor for the west coast seals and they had you know they had a, a pretty big media presence and sort of a quasi celebrity status I could call up people and You know after i I could read someone's book or hear them lecture or you know watch their ted talk or something and i could just call them and say hey i'm kirk parsley i'm the i'm the doctor for the west coast seal teams you know i i have found what you said really interesting intriguing I, i was wondering if i could consult with consult with you with my clients or maybe come train with you or whatever and every single person that i contacted every single one of them were falling over themselves to be helpful. They all like, so I, I, I got to learn from some really top tier people really early and, and I got to learn a lot. And so it, it kind of, you know, launched my, my knowledge level, something that probably would have
1: taken me 10 years. I learned in a couple of years. And I think that's one thing that's really important to understand for the listener and the viewer is that you don't have to go to a specific accredited course to, to learn good information. You can learn it from, podcasts you can learn it from hearing it from a podcast and then go studying with that guy that did that lecture and learning straight from the source and you can learn so much faster than having you know these and in fact that's yeah I, I as you say in fact that that's the
0: best way to do it you know because when when you look at things like you know what they started with you know they started with cam complementary and alternative medicine and then there were alternative medicine pathways and then there was integrative and then there was functional and integrative but you know you you look at any of these institutions that are teaching functional integrative medicine they're teaching in the same didactic way that we learned medical school and they're teaching protocols and they're teaching you know they're, they're they're you know they're just doing the same damn thing that the medical establishment is doing but instead of enriching pharmaceuticals they're enriching half a dozen doctors that are writing the curriculum and that, and that, you know, that's not the right way either, because everything changes all of the time. And you need to say, hey, within my patient population, what I keep seeing, what's really bothering me that I don't know how to fix is this. And I'm going to go learn everything I need to know about that and to where I can I can work with that. And then I'm going to do that with something else. I'm going to do that with something else. I'm going to do that with something else. And you and you have to, you know, you granted you have to have your life set up for that and if you're working within the big medicine machine you don't that's not an option for you right i mean because you i mean whether you're working in a hospital or running your own practice i mean you're you're grind you know you're using 100 percent of your energy to do what you're responsible to do and then you know god forbid you're naive enough to have a family or something like that or want to have a hobby you know there's no time. Like you, you just simply can't do that. You know, people, people bash doctors a lot, and and some of it's well deserved. No, don't get me wrong. But you know, people bash doctors a lot for not keeping up on the research. I'm like, do you know how much research is coming out? I mean, do you do you understand that? Like, you if it, if you if you did nothing but read all day, if you got up in the morning and you read studies for 12 hours a day, 365 days a year, you would get through about two or three percent of what's published every year. So. know that that's not a solution either you can't just you can't just uh read generally right you have you you have to really just go down the rabbit hole and you have to have the skills to you know i I don't i don't really think i was taught that well in medical school i think i think those are skills i learned later and and by and large i'll give a lot of credit to peter atia because i'm i'm you know i i became friends with him you know probably just about a year or two after getting out of the Navy and, uh, you know, and and he and I worked together on a lot of stuff. And uh, he, and he really, I think he really taught me how to research a lot faster, you know, so that I can just throw away silly stuff and, and, you know, dig in what's on what's important, but, you know, the system just isn't, the system just isn't well set up for, you know, what, what we actually need doctors to do it's not it's not realistic for them to keep up with it and these continuing medical education courses again yeah that and and at some level or another and and it would take it take an hour to defend the statement but this is something i've thought through and researched through and talked to a lot of really smart people about yeah the medical education whether it's continuing medical edu- continuing medical Medical education, or just medical school itself, or nurse practitioner school, whatever. I mean, like Western healthcare, that that information by and by and large is is from pharma, right? I mean, it, that research is funded by pharma at the end of the day, and they're and they're hiring people that are looking into the things they want them to look into, and frankly, have a incentive structure to come up with a conclusion what the pharmaceutical industry wants them to come up with you know and i and i'm not and I'm, I'm not accusing people of malevolent or malicious behavior i'm i'm just saying that it, it's it's human nature to gravitate towards what's rewarding to you and i think i think there's a, a lot of that going on and so the only way to do it is to educate yourself and fortunately you know because of my background and when i started doing all of this i it was early in the game and yeah, you know, there were there weren't that many health podcasts out there, and there weren't that many health influencers out there. And I, you know, I became friends with a lot of them and got on you know podcast early and got on a lot of stages early and all that stuff. And with with that advent of all that, it's allowed me to do private consulting. And my private consulting, I can spend you know I can spend fifteen hours figuring out one lab value on one on one of my clients that I don't understand if I want to, right? And and I can spend two hours interviewing my you know my clients on their initial intakes and you know and so it's you know my life is set up to be able to do that but i'm i'm still my knowledge is still limited by what i see clinically right i mean you know there's all sorts of stuff that i don't see clinically that i know nothing about that the general practitioner probably knows a lot more than i do about
1: have you been treating patients that are vaxxed injured
0: yes yeah quite quite a few unfortunately my mother's one of them yeah my, my mother had a stroke after the vaccine fortunately you know it wasn't it wasn't a huge stroke it was in size but i knew what to do to treat her and we literally you know left the same day she got discharged from the hospital we drove straight to a hyperbarics facility and we started her hyperbarics and You know, I, I've started her on sort of all the neurological enhancing peptides and, you know, we, we, we've done all of the treatments very well. And, you know, she has nearly, she, she doesn't have any sequelae that you or I would pick up on, but she has, you know, she has nearly, nearly no, no residual symptoms from it. But yeah, I, I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of it. And, uh, and we're going to say a lot more. You know, I, I heard the the one podcast I'll always listen to is anybody smart talking about the vaccine because that it, that I I don't think people appreciate how how complex that issue is. You know, I mean, I'm for one thing. I mean, let's be honest, like the human. The human is the most complex thing we we know of right and 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 we are that and we have the ability to study ourselves but we're the most complex thing we we can imagine and the body doesn't have systems right like it we break it into systems as a way to learn it but everything's everything's working simultaneously and everything impacts everything else so everything is a part of everything else so there are there are no there are no systems but if you want to call it systems, you know, then it's one complex system overlaid by another, overlaid by another, overlaid by another, overlaid by another, living within this environment, which is complex system after complex system after complex system. And there there's you know, there there's no way that any any one person can really know anything, you know. And collectively we probably understand about one percent. Two percent of of human biology and physiology, but we we act like we know a lot more because <laughs> we use big words and you know publish papers on them, whatever. But you know there, you know one thing I just heard Peter McCullough say, and and well, and I and I'd heard it earlier on Brett Weinstein's podcast, The Dark Horse. He he was talking about how you know the mRNA isn't even actually RNA because instead of where uridine would be they put a uracil there to make it more stable but we don't have an enzyme to break that down so the mrna doesn't break down and any mrna that stays in the cell long enough forms a plasmid and the plasmid can be incorporated into the genome and so i mean that's all the whole purpose of a plasmid and the plasmid can go can get in the nucleus and actually become part of your dna and if that happens well then you have a sequence of your dna that's going if expressed epigenetically expressed, then it's going to produce spike protein for the rest of your life. And the spike protein itself is toxic. So why they chose that, one can only guess, but seems like a very stupid idea. And so, yeah, that that spike protein is, is toxic. And if you're producing it forever, you know, even if it's intermittent to leave forever, like who knows what it's going to do. I mean, it's, it's definitely going to attach to vascular endothelium. It's going to attach to all solid organs. So you're going to have liver problems and kidney problems and heart problems and immune problems because it's in your spleen and, you know, intravascular problems anywhere where it's, you know, binding to intravascularly to say like, you know, a capillary, well, that's going to block a red blood cell and, you know, red blood cells obviously go single file through capillary. So there's a spike protein bound in there. That's not getting through there. So now you're cutting off blood supply to what? Anything, right? And well, if it happens in the brain, we call it a stroke. And if it happens in the heart, then it's a heart attack. But what about when it's happening in your bones, or your muscles, or your liver, or your spleen, or your kidneys, or your lungs, or you know, whatever? I mean, it's still causing damage. And so I don't think I don't think we've I don't think we're in anywhere close to understanding the magnitude of of what's likely to come from this vaccine and we and we do know that the more vaccines you get the more likely this scenario is i've heard i've heard some postulates or speculations that you know what what really saved a lot of people was the instability of the vaccine and so you know when they're when they're like having vaccines done at a stadium or, you know, at a drive through or, or something, those vaccines are probably getting so warm that they degraded. And if they degraded, then, you know, <laughs> you didn't get nearly the same mRNA load, or maybe you got no, R- no mRNA load. But, you know, with every successive vaccine booster you get, like, you're more likely to get the full dose, right? As people get better at preserving it and all that stuff. So, so I... I mean, I I don't I don't even want to know where it's going to go. But I guess you know we're going to see. We'll, we'll I'll see what I see in my lifetime. But yeah, they're vaccinating children now who will be alive after I'm dead, hopefully. And uh, you know, who knows? Can it be passed on genetically? If it you know if it gets embedded into your DNA, I
1: probably. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, and one thing you said about the degradation of this mRNA over time, which I think you're right, absolutely right, that it probably saved a lot of people from damaging substances being injected to them, but even siRNA, or small interfering RNA, is a thing in the body, and what it's designed to do is when a gene is expressed and it gets sent out of the nucleus and little bits get clipped off, those little bits that get clipped off go back into the nucleus and say, quit expressing this gene because we have enough of it available. And that was never brought up in public. No one ever said, oh, yeah, your RNA can, you know, epigenetic, epigenetically affect your genes and how they're expressed. Right, right. And as it, you know,
0: and it, well, for anyone who doesn't know, the epigenetics that I mean that's far more important than the genetics right you know like every every cell in your body has the same genetics but they're not all the same type of cell right the reason the reason a liver cell is different than a kidney cell is different than a heart cell is because of epigenetic expression right they're all the same DNA is in there it's just like what's being expressed in that cell so you start changing that you start changing yourself at a cellular level and that's not likely to manifest itself until it's really, like a really big deal, right? You've you've completely changed the function of of a tissue, perhaps.
1: And there's so many people that are not reporting their injuries, and I'm not exactly sure why. Yesterday I spoke to a retired Marine general, and he, he was unwilling to come on my podcast at this time. I pray that at some point he'll share his story. But he left because of his injury. And it's, you know... He was a warrior and he's not happy with, with what happened to him. He's very, he was very upset with what happened to him, but I'm hoping that he'll come on here to help encourage those that refuse to give it, to give them strength. And I hope that he comes on to also encourage those that have been injured to speak out about their injuries so that we get justice here on this earth. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, I, I'd say
0: I, I, I probably get a call at least one call a week probably closer to two calls a week from some military member and and this is all word of mouth of course i don't i don't advertise myself but it's just you know through some sort of mutual associate between us you know i get calls weekly from young guys who have these strange obscure findings that nobody can solve but it's preventing them from finishing whatever training they're in, like you know. So I get a lot from. Unfortunately, I get a lot from pilots, and you know, I've I've had it as bad as is one one pilot i have working with. I, I want to say he's like twenty five ish, completely young, healthy guy, and he was four four flights away from being qualified in, in fighter jets, which is obviously like the most competitive thing. So, you know, they gave him like a medical respite. And as long as it was less than six, 60 days, he didn't have to go through a med board. And then when I told him what, it, what he needed to do to improve his symptoms, he said, well, you know, I don't think my flight docs are going to sign off on that. And I said, I think you're probably right, <laughs> you know, so yeah you, know, you can you, know, you handle that however you want to, and you know he 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 went and talked to his flight docs and they said no that he couldn't do that. ironically, the thing they were the most concerned about was him being in hyperbarics <laughs> uh, and hyperbarics is definitely one of the most powerful treatments and I'm like, okay, well. He kind of does hyperbarics every time <laughs> like, hypo to yeah. back yeah. down to the ground is <laughs> you know he re he, so he's like he's doing hypo and then coming back down to ground which just hyper so like you know he he's recompressing from where he was from his hypo state down to ground state whatever so ironically that was the thing they were the most concerned about, but you know he he didn't you know he he said he was gonna stick with their advice and then. I don't know, maybe two or three weeks later he was hospitalized. They thought maybe he had a stroke and he didn't he didn't have a stroke. You know, he didn't have a stroke by any clinical findings, but he doesn't he can't get himself out of this milieu, you know. And so I just said Yeah, I like I like I I wish you luck and I, I wish you well, but you know, it it's not you know, it's not my place to tell this guy he needs to work. With, you know, violate his own integrity and work throughout, you know, work around the system. And honestly, I don't know that I would do that if I were him either. I would just say, hey, I'm going to do this, maybe. And then, like, if you kick me out, you kick me out. But, you know, my long term health is more important than my wings, you know, I, I think is how I would approach it. But, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, he's young and so he doesn't, he probably doesn't think that his long term health is going to be a problem. This is just a little, glitch and he wants to get his wings and so he's doing whatever he can but i would imagine at this point he's probably in front of a med board and he's probably not going to be able to you know do it and yeah and and i bring that one up just because i you know that that one was just really kind of heartbreaking for me you know because he's he's so young and such a high achiever and when we first started working together we had a real like a real shot when he first called me I had a, you know, a real shot of kind of getting rid of all of those symptoms. Now, how long those symptoms, you know, stay away, I don't know the answer to that yet, but I have seen, a, I mean, just night and day difference in people in as little as, you know, two weeks of treatment. And, uh, and, and, you know, I I don't treat anybody just for two weeks, but, you know, I have people who I, who... I I had another guy who's a he's a stuntman and an actor and a a former UFC fighter and just I mean just an all-around amazing dude and he's about my age and he had he had a stroke from the vaccine as well and you know I you know I I I treated him and get you know we got through 100% of his symptoms and you know he, he probably hasn't done any treatment now for six or eight months or something and he's still fine he's but I don't know. Like maybe, you know, three, four, five, six, eight months from now, he, you know, some of those symptoms are going to start coming back. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know at this point how long the treatment takes. But you know, as we were talking about earlier, if it gets incorporated into the DNA and it gets re-expressed, one can only assume it's going to be either the same result or, you know, whatever, some kind of other result depends on where it gets re- re-expressed in. There's a lot of evidence that it consolidates you know any anything that has a ton of capillaries in it or capillary like passages, so think of like you know the kidney and the testicles and ovaries and the liver and the and the spleen and like those types of solid organs that have a ton of blood flow and tons of passages because they're you know they're working on one red blood cell at a time, essentially, right you know all of those are. Are likely targets, right? And, and then the brain just doesn't take any kind of insult well, you know, it very it takes a very small insult to have a a really big neurological deficit that could last the rest of your life. So like you know, are are the are the people who had strokes, is that is that their only risk or, you know, do we have to, you know, two years from now are we gonna see something much more common in people I like, I don't know. Like you know, my guess would be that you know, depending on it, you know, if the plasma does incorporate into your DNA, you know, does it incorporate into an area of DNA that's highly expressed in that cell, right? So, you know, and and then that that would determine, right? Because if your epigenetics are such that, well, that area you know incorporated into a liver cell, say, but you know, the region that where it incorporated doesn't ever get expressed for liver cells well then you're probably not gonna have liver problems but like i i don't know the answer to that right i don't know if there's if there's a routine place where it's where it's being embedded or if it's random or something i i don't i don't know enough about genetics to know that but i i do know that this is not even close to being done <laughs> like we're, we're nowhere we're nowhere near the finish line on this this is this is this is the beginning
1: yeah and with this being the beginning, and if people are are looking for good good doctors that have a good head on their shoulders, are are you accepting patients? And is there a place where people can get a hold of you if you are accepting patients?
0: I I'm not I, I'm not accepting patients. I do yeah I do one off consults for you know for military folks or like anyone in the seal like any special forces guys. Of course I see I. I, I do have private clients, but that's, I don't, it, that's not a, like a, this, that's not, that's not like a disease model. It's a, it's a, it's a health and wellness model. So it's really a, it's a lifestyle modification course that, you know, is a year, it's a one, it's a one year annual fee. It It's prohibitively expensive for most people because I take very few clients so that I can spend a lot of, you know, I can spend as much time as I need. but if people you know want to go to my website and ask ask for questions I uh, or, or ask for help if you can give me the region of you know if you can tell me where you live or you know the areas that you're you'd be available to seek treatment, I have a decent network within America, a few outside the country, but primarily within america and and I'm happy to try to line you with people who who do the types of things that I do, and I am I am working with several people. We're gonna we're trying to sort of figure out a way to do you know some some sort of registry that people could go to and just like look up physicians who think in this way. And there is that frontline doctors thing, the FLCCC or whatever. I, they and they 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 focus they they focus they focus on a lot on this vaccine. I I don't know exactly what their physicians are doing. I haven't I haven't followed up on that aspect of them. I use their protocols to treat COVID, but I haven't I haven't looked into their sort of long COVID or vaccine injury protocols yet. But that that would be another place. I mean, there, there's there's I think fifty thousand doctors involved in that. So you can you can probably find somebody close to you who has some good ideas. But I I can tell you that yeah the, the most the most efficacious things that I've seen is, you know, combination of of peptides and, and peptides are limited to clinical research. So when I'm using them with my patients, I'm technically doing research. But pe- peptides, hyperbarics and then full full spectrum saunas, you know, some combination of that is, is what I've I've seen the best the best effects with. And then targeting, of course, whatever. Your specific problem is, but you know, one one of my good friends, PhD, in and Tampa owns a hyperbaric facility. You know, he had a he had a vaccine injured woman who couldn't talk hadn't hadn't been able to say a word since she had had the vaccine, and it had been I don't know four six months or something. And after ten hyperbaric treatments, she was one hundred percent better. You know, she could. Yeah in fact they wanted her to quit talking. <laughs> that was the big joke. They're like, "Jesus, once we got her, once we got her talking, I was like, "Man, maybe we should have only given you eight treatments, you know? But yeah, but yeah, I I think I think she stayed in treatment for a, a full 8-week treatment. But again, you know, the you know, it's another problem with western, you know, with Amer- the American medical sy- system. You know, we, you know, one of like my my residency in the navy was in was in hyperbarics, right? So that that's, that's part of the dive medicine residency for the military. And we have 13 approved uses for hyperbarics. So if it's not one of those 13 uses, you have to pay cash. But if a hyperbarics facility does insurance-based work, then they can't do cash work. So anything associated with the hospital is doing insurance work. So you have to have one of these 13 things. And if you don't fit in there, you can't use that. So I have I have a ton of clients who are nowhere near a hyperbaric chamber, and if they have the means and the time, they move temporarily. You know, they go stay somewhere for two months and do some treatment. And I'm and I'm I'm kind of working with some investors and stuff. I'm trying to create some mobile, you know, mobile facilities. You know, put a chamber in an air conditioned trailer and like you know, because a lot of these chambers you can learn to use yourself. You know, as long as you're a fairly healthy person you can you can get in there and operate it from the inside and treat yourself but uh, you know if there anybody listening to your podcast is interested in in a business model hyperbaric facilities are are going to be you know they they haven't let out a ton of the research yet it hasn't hit mainstream media but I'm I'm well steeped in that community and uh, questionably it, it's going to eventually come out that this is the best you know you know, in combination with it, but if, honestly, if you could only do one thing, I would say I would say do hyperbarics. But you know, hopefully you'll you know there'll be facilities that are doing adjuncts to that hyperbarics. But I think that's probably going to be the number one thing that people are going to be using for you know for these long COVID and COVID vaccines. And I and not that you can distinguish those two anymore, right? Because so many people got vaccinated and then got covid okay so what is it is it the vaccine or is, or was it damage from the covid or was it damage from the vaccine like we're we're never going to know but it does seem to be you know the 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 benefit of hyperbarics is that you can get oxygen to places where you don't have blood supply right because the only way to carry oxygen in your bloodstream is by being bound to the hemoglobin in red blood cells Unless you do 100% oxygen and you take it down to deeper than one atmosphere, you go down to two atmospheres, and then you can crush air bubbles, like oxygen bubbles into the plasma, and that can just diffuse out anywhere, and it can go all over your body, and over the course of time, it does. It saturates all of your tissue with oxygen. And then that, of course, it, you know, that's of course what your mitochondria need you know it's part of oxidative phosphorylation like they like you know they mitochondria need that to produce their energy which is your cells energy which is you know your your cells ability to do their work and repair themselves and so i i think hyperbarics is just going to be an enormous opportunity and i know a guy here in austin who owns the biggest facility that produces hyperbaric chambers he owns the biggest one in the country and you know, they, they're already having a hard time keeping them with demand. So I, you know, the word's slowly getting out, but that's, that's going to be a really big treatment. And if—and I would encourage anybody who is, who's listening to this, who has problems that they suspect are from the vaccine or from, or from long COVID, whatever that is to, to seek that out. And those soft chambers that you see at the strip malls, there's no evidence that those work. They, they don't go deep enough and they're not a hundred percent oxygen. So it, it's not, you're not comparing apples to apples there.
1: Dr. Parsley, thank you so much. I want to be respectful of your time. I know you, you've got some deadlines coming up. That is great information and perhaps some, sometime in the future you can come back on. This was very good. And I hope people are able to, if there's any special operators out there, they can reach out to you and, and if not get help from you, find where to get that help. Thank you so much. Yep. Yeah, you're, you're welcome.
0: Thanks for giving me the opportunity to blabber.
1: <laughs> Thank you, sir. God bless. Just a reminder for everyone out there: in duty uniform of the day, the full armor of God. Let's all make courage more contagious than fear. I recently got a new affiliate. It's Harvest Right Freeze Dryer. I've been using them since 2016. It's a great way to preserve food for long periods of time, up to 25 years if stored properly. Please take a look at it, use the link below. Thank you.